All right, friends, how's it going? It's Mike, you listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast, episode 117 to be exact. It's the show where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for checking this one out. It's the third episode of my Kerno Omnibus, and my interview with celebrated longboarder Mike Lay, which I recorded up at Wheel Kitty in St Agnes a few weeks before the world went to it. Well, shit, really. Incidentally, my thanks to the guys at Open Surf up at Wheel Kitty because they generously let me use their space to record this episode, which was right neighbourly of them. So thanks, guys. So you know, one of the weirdly unexpected things about this simultaneously hyper-accelerated and radically paused life we're all living right now is how quickly things can become a cliche. The word unprecedented, heartfelt yet slightly cheesy messages and emails from businesses that you'd forgotten existed, Instagram Live, guilty of that, articles about home working tips, also guilty, the phrase, it seems like a lifetime ago, massively guilty of that one, used it the other night, nearly used it then, in fact, and yet this conversation with Mikey Lay, well, it does really feel like a lifetime ago. I mean, for a start, we were allowed outside. Secondly, the sun was shining, although obviously the sun has been shining this week, which has been bloody lovely. The coffee was fantastic. Thanks again, Open Surf. And the conversation with somebody I'd just met the day before, in fact, I only met him that day, what am I even talking about, was undeniably fantastic. So I'm already holding this one close. And I hope once you've heard it, you will too, because Mikey Lay is a bit of an extraordinary individual. He's an outstanding longboarder. I'm going to say one of the best these islands have ever produced, as his status as one of uh, Reef's main players, alongside peers such as Rob Machado and Mick Fanning, surely demonstrates. But he's also a creative, a dreamer, a reader, a writer, above all, a thinker. God, that was getting perilously close to that T.E. Lawrence quote everybody's always banging on about on Instagram. But those are the reasons that I really wanted to speak to him. As regular listeners will know, people who are amazingly good at sliding sideways and are also able to see beyond the margins of our insular little world, well, that's pretty much the criteria by which I choose guests. And that's why I was so keen to speak to Mikey. And I'm very glad I did because this conversation soon took off into some unexpected regions. And what I really liked about this was... Mikey's willingness to recognise the great good fortune of his position and how level-headed his perspective on the whole thing is. I mean, I've been working in this game for an astonishing almost 30 years now. And self-entitled pro-athletes are as common as double-header Instagram live interviews currently are. So when you meet somebody like Mike, who is considered and has opinions about the whole daft Farago, I reckon they're worth chatting to. So that's what I did. And it was great, as I think you're going to hear. I'll be back at the end with a bumper housekeeping corner. But in the meantime, here's me and Mike Lay. Enjoy. All the professionals have stands and studios. (laughs) I always rock up with this little, little ghetto. I like this. Little ghetto arrangement and... You know, I have to go through the instructions, but yeah, it seems to work. So how you doing, man? You're right. I'm very well. Thank you, mate. Yeah. Nice to see you. Good to see you too. Yeah. Thanks for coming. So we are Wheel Kitty in our friends uh, sideways. Nice spot, isn't it? It's a lovely spot. Yeah. They've got a good thing in this whole um, complex. They've got lots going on. Yeah. It seems to have expanded. Every time I come up here, there's like a new shaper or there's a new coffee shop or you know yeah it's good man and you're off to mexico yep tomorrow yep so we're driving up to the airport tonight staying over and then uh off with the finished air crew yeah to mexico yeah and what's where are you off to to sayulita which is in uh, the region of nayarit um we're staying well we're going to see my, my friend israel who uh is kind of the fixer for the shoot but he right organizes a contest called the mexi log fest so okay i kind of linked finisterre up with him right um yeah some beautiful waves nice place, yeah so it's a shoot um, basically yeah it's just, it's their summer range um so board shorts and bikinis hence the the long distance nice i'm pretty jealous because yeah. we're in the middle of what is this storm Jorge. Yeah, we've got to i, be, I believe <laughs> feels like we've been rattling through the alphabet yeah. faster than normal i just got to i'm staying at watergate bay and 
yeah, I was just saying, I was like, oh, yeah, try surf for a few days, but I don't come surfing. Yeah. Pretty, pretty on shore and pretty wild. Yeah. But how's your winter been? Good? Yeah, it has been good. You had a few waves? Yeah. Um, Yeah, lucky in living in West Cornwall. Yeah, Um, you're down in Sanon, obviously. Yeah, I actually live in a village called Pendine, um, which is just sort of five minutes from Sanon. Yeah. Um, But we got a lot of options there for when it does get stormy. So it's, it's a good place to be. Yeah, and you were saying that you were, you've dodged a bullet on the coronavirus tip. You had, you had, you basically had, by the sounds of it, the perfect itinerary through which to to come down with coronavirus yeah. and then suffer. The, so you were supposed to go to China, is that right? Yeah, and then you were going to go to Australia. Yeah. So what was the plan? What happened? I was, um, yeah, I, I had this this really. It was the perfect. Now it seems like the perfect way to contract coronavirus and yeah. quarantine for the rest of the year um but at first it seemed like the perfect way to earn a bit of money um see my friends in australia then go to mexico and come back so i was meant to be training the uh the longboard team in china the chinese longboard team yeah i think i think actually it's one of the it's a regional longboard team one of the regional governments was actually paying for it right um, and they, but they've got a whole program which is i think in one way or another state sponsored to yeah they're really throwing money at well i didn't realize they were doing it with surfing but i know they're doing it with snowboarding and and, and winter sports because and it's state funded as well because I, I went to china four years ago and they held the um world snowboard championships there and it was one of them where like obviously clearly the chinese government had just offered a shitload of money to hold this event there and it was in the middle of nowhere. It was basically in Mongolia, really, like where this resort was. And anyway, it was on state TV. So it was watched by a billion people. And, you know, when I was talking, I was there to write a story for a snowboarding magazine. And when I was talking to people there, it was like, basically the government is, is they've got this like 10, 15 year, 20 year plan. They're invested in ski resorts. They're invested in athletes. They're invested in infrastructure, and it sounds by all accounts like that's what's going on with surfing as well. Then, yeah, I think so. Um, I don't know what metric they judge a sport, kind of by its um, potential for success, but they've obviously done it with snowboarding and done yeah. it with surfing, and they've they've built their own wave pool. Yeah, um, oh, they have. Yeah, they've got right. their own wave pool. That right, they, they train at. Are they arguing about what technology is best as well? Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whether it's best to have like a punt section at the end or something. Yeah, they got sure. like anguished blogs about what it's going to do for yeah, the future yeah. of surfing. Yeah, yeah. existential rants yeah, about yeah. ocean and fresh water. Yeah, um, but yeah, they're just plowing money into it. And I, I, one of my friends, um, who's also my my shaper, Mitch, he's been helping to train them in Australia because they fly right. to Australia. And anyway, he couldn't do it in China, so I was going to go over for a month get paid they were going to fly me there then fly me to australia i was going to pick up some boards go to mexico do this shoot come home right all fell through i was a bit gutted and then one or two weeks later global pandemic strikes and yeah I dodged a bullet, so. yeah definitely because you, you were going to go to nisa after that then yeah for that event um yeah yeah i was yeah meant to do the well i don't know there's there's a there's a whole thing that, which is a, a probably another conversation about professional longboarding the wsl's um drive to include single fin longboarding yeah so i would have probably gone out and maybe done that maybe not i'm still undecided about where i <laughs> fit into it or really so in what way um well maybe if you could explain what the like so they brought devon howard in right to to kind of oversee the wsl longboard tour and that was that was quite recently right it was like last year last year yeah and so the, the and they've tried to open it out basically yeah, well, th- there's been, for the last 10 years maybe, there's been a lot of soul-searching and longboarding about what kind of equipment someone, a longboarder, should be riding, what sort of manoeuvres someone should be doing on a longboard. Um, and for since sort of the early 90s, people were riding quite lightweight, two-plus-one set-up longboards. Um, and then at the start of the noughties a couple of films by thomas campbell one in 1999 called the seedling and then the sprout a couple of years later kind of heralded the resurgence of single fin longboarding yeah um with joel tudor as the kind of figurehead of that movement yeah and then joel joel has been pushing for that movement the single fin longboarding movement to take precedence over the high performance style yeah i was that, gonna say you could call it performance style, yeah, right? yeah yeah so it's called high pro is the yeah um 
Yeah, and he's he's like a he's a man who knows his surf history. Let's put it that way. He does, and, yeah. and, he, and he knows what he thinks is the right path. I yeah. think you can say, can't yeah. you? You know, yeah. And he's very um, unflinching and uh, inflexible in his view of what good longboarding should be. Yeah, which um, he's which he's done his own events, obviously, where yeah. he's tried to sort of like forward that. Yeah, yeah, which you've taken part in right the yeah, du- the yeah. Duct tape. i've done one of his duct tapes in huntington um which was really fun and those events also they i don't know whether they gave birth or at the same time a kind of a uh, a global network of similar single fin events sprung up um there's one here called smooth movers yep um and there was james parry did one called the hip wigglers here and then there's the Mexi Logfest, which I mentioned yeah. earlier, one in New Zealand, one in Portugal. There's lots of events like that, which I really enjoy going to and competing loosely in. Yeah. And that's that's where now the paths of professionalism in the WSL with Devon Howard, they're taking that ethos of single fin longboarding, but bringing it into the WSL. A, into the WSL, yeah. Context. So, yeah. And lots of, I think it, it's definitely a good thing, but I just don't know whether I... I'm gonna gonna be part of that. What, what, what? As in, you don't? You've got your reservations about that, or I don't know. I'm not sure. I think there, there, there was the whole. Uh, for me, I I rode high performance longboards when I was younger because that's all I knew that there was. Yeah. We're kind of isolated in West Cornwall and maybe in the UK in general from um any well surf culture really, but. I stopped riding high performance longboards, started riding single fins as a, it was kind of anti-competitive. It was just like, just don't, just enjoy yourself. Right. And it's, um, was that quite an early thing for you then? Yeah. I was probably, I was 16, but then it's funny because there's contradictions. Like I moved into the open category of the British longboard union. Right. Tour. So the BLU tour was the framework which young longboarders competed in. And I was in the juniors and me and my friend Matt and, my uh, other good friend Trev who's from St Agnes we would just win all the comps together we'd take turns winning and then you get into the uh, seniors and we weren't winning right and I wasn't enjoying it as much because winning's more fun than <laughs> losing than, than not winning yeah exactly <laughs> so I, I just thought bugger this I'm just gonna ride single fin long boards now right okay um, so, so it, was, it was a bit linked to kind of expression thing and like getting away from that a yeah. really competitive approach let's yeah. say right. so then my whole surfing up to now has been kind of not very competitive and very enjoyable as a yeah. result of that that lack of um, competition how old were you when you made that call then? Um, I said I was 16 but actually I was 18 right um, and that was a conscious thing then that was like yeah but then also I was just James Parry who's from Senin as well um, he stopped riding high performance boards and I was just like my friend Matt and I who grew up the same age surfing longboards we just did what james did yeah he was the he was the local like he was your mentor as it were yeah Yeah. totally and he's only i mean he's maybe four years older than us but yeah he stopped it when when you when you that formative age that's quite a big age difference though isn't it when you're in yeah when you're in your early teens yeah so we had that age difference but also we were with him all the time surfing with him all the time he'd take us to all the contests and he was um kind of laying the path for us as as surfers so when he when he started riding single fins, we were like, right, that's what we're going to do. That's what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. So it was that led to a conscious decision to stop doing competitions, just because um, that seemed to be it, it, you couldn't ride single fins in events, or it felt like you couldn't at that time. Yes, yeah. the judging criteria was so um, so skewed towards high performance longboarding. That yeah, just you wouldn't. Right, you wouldn't succeed on a on a single fin. No. So you just dipped into these competitions that represented a little bit more longboarding as you saw it. Yeah, as they started to flourish. Then. Yeah, like, as like the ones you've outlined. Yeah, and because we were talking before we started recording, and I was kind of saying like, what's interesting about your career path is you've you've gone off on your own direction really, and you've kind of described the foundations of it there, and you have been able to like pursue that. So it appears. And make it, you know, like a career as a inverted commas free surfer. Free, you know, you know what I mean. Like you, you've not had to compete. Um, you've and you, you can travel and you can film and you can do that thing. But it's not the most common path for British surfers, really. Um, so, 
there's a couple of things to talk about with that one of which is perhaps it is common with big wave surfers because it, like, it's necessary in that but for for what you do it isn't that common so did you when you started to make these choices and make this decision did you like feel it was a viable path that you could do did you want to try and make a career out of it or were you just like this is the most fun i'm just gonna keep doing that yeah i think when when i started riding single fin longboards and and not competing there was making a career out of surfing was the last thing in my mind it was yeah just not, i mean i i thought that's what you'd say yeah I, I can't imagine it was like yeah a, 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 on careers night yeah know, yeah yeah yeah. it was like well, you, surfing could, longboard you, you could do this yeah 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 totally it, it was not it was just so far away from being financially viable not even that i was thinking about yeah. terms such as financial viability i was just surfing yeah were there um, any people that you saw doing it though at that age from here obviously there's countless people in the states and australia and you know yeah i, I guess well someone we've spoken about james but um sam bleakley's yeah. from senin as well yeah and again he's a bit older right yeah yeah he's a, probably another four or five years older than james so maybe 10 years older than me but a bit more than that maybe but he he was the first person i really looked up to and actually maybe he planted the seed of the idea of having a career in surfing um but taking it through a more well, Sam did it in an intellectual route maybe but using writing and travel yeah and, and, and filmmaking culture, and yeah. yeah filmmaking now is definitely a big part of what he does but um he he's got two or three European titles and he won two of them while studying at Cambridge yeah um and when I was at school I did well at school and that I was more of an academic person probably than um looking down a competitive route so sure. sam's way of doing things really appealed to me it was an inspiration yeah definitely yeah I, I remember in um french actually when i was probably 12 or 13 they asked to do a profile of a a celebrity right and but you did sam french and assembly brilliant <laughs> yeah that's great yeah um so he so yeah so he gave you a bit of a because obviously you write as well and you know the you know creative expression it's a big part of what you're, you're doing as well so he was one of the people that you you kind of looked up to and thought you know maybe there is a way yeah yeah totally and i but i, I still i went to university and st i studied creative writing and english literature um and when i'd finished university i'd been studied i'd been lifeguarding in the summers and surfing a lot in the summers but then going back to university and when i finished i my girlfriend and i thought our lives probably lay in London. She was a musician and I was thinking about maybe getting a job in publishing or right. something like that going just not surfing wasn't a career option yeah. um, at that stage. And uh, I, lots of lucky things fell into place. Yeah. Did you try there. and do that? Did you? Did no, you... no, it didn't, didn't get to that point. Right. It didn't get to that point. I, I basically, um, I'll tell you the, yeah, uh, the story of how it came about, but I, I was just lifeguarding in the at Senin and the head of Reef um, in Europe happened to be an English guy called Nathan Hill. And it's quite rare for a, an English person to be in charge of a European surf brand. And he was on holiday with his kids. And I, I don't, I think I met him. He had a friend called Russ Pierre who they knew from surfing in Brighton or something. I'm not, I'm not really sure how it came about, but anyway, right. I got a phone call from him a month after he'd left and asked me if I wanted to be sponsored by Reef. And at the time I didn't, any, it was, yeah, I was just like, yeah, sure. Right. right. And that, that relationship grew with his influence in, in the brand on a global scale as well sure. as a European scale that grew into a career. Right. So, I mean, you need that though, don't you? You need those kind of like, if you want breaks, but also like the, you know the, the the mentorship you know as well as somebody that can can show you a way of doing it it's really important yeah totally uh, and i think nathan my career now is 100 percent down to him he, yeah. he's the reason that i've i've managed to lead such an amazing life up to now or, or amazing in a in a kind of worry-free surfing all the time yeah going on holiday sense <laughs> um yeah i mean i'd say that would fit most people's definition of amazing <laughs> yeah yeah i mean especially in, in, listen to this in quite a self-absorbed like selfish way I, it's quite did any part of you regret the fact that you didn't because obviously you've tried to fulfill your intellectual and creative ambitions in tandem with this but was there any part of you that 
kind of feels like you haven't fulfilled the potential on that side to the degree that you perhaps know that you could do? I think so, yeah. I think there is. Um, just because surfing for me, I, I love surfing so much and I have, it's such an addictive thing for me that it almost pushes everything else out of the way. And it, especially I'm in such a fortunate position where I don't necessarily need to work um surfing is my main source of income and i'm just at home and every day i just am thinking about going surfing and that kind of crowds out not entirely like i, I still write a lot and writing is writing is the cornerstone of my surfing career as well it's how i how i operate in kind of a content creation uh, right so, so as in like writing for magazines yeah exactly and, yeah um but it definitely i feel like i have more work to do in, yeah in that world yeah i think if you i kind of understand what you mean there which is why i asked the question really because if you if you're lucky enough to i mean this is like get out of the world's tiniest violin slash first world problems territory isn't it you know what i mean like but it is interesting because i think everybody everybody feels like they have a an amount of potential that you know deep down and i don't just mean you know if you might have like literary pretensions or whatever but just everybody really has a, has an understanding of like what for them feels like potential fulfilled and physically obviously you've done that but that doesn't mean and clearly surfing provides you with mental nourishment as well as you've just explained but i think they're quite they can be quite different and it can be quite difficult to balance them if you you know especially if you you, know, you said it sounds like you had a pretty strong academic grounding and saw yourself going on a particular path you know so I can I can understand like and it's probably quite easy for you doing like surf journalism and writing those stories and you know so yeah just because you write you write poetry as well right because I chatted to Jack Johns about always trying to do a little bit of digging beforehand and he was like oh I'm, I think I met him at a poetry reading like uh so that and so you know you write poetry and you do recitals and stuff is that something that you're still doing yeah yeah that is and that that's my kind of main creative output is is poetry um i haven't done a recital in a while that's probably one of the things that has taken a back seat yeah um as i've been chasing surfing for the last few years but i write poems all the time but they just it's fu funny poetry because it's I j they just get written and then that's it at the moment it, it it's a it's a less obvious there's a less obvious path to getting your work out there with poetry um i think for a number of reasons of it can feel quite it's quite a hard thing just to read someone your poems well it's very it i would say as like you know all creative expression is is pretty is very revealing that's a fucking glib thing to say but you know what i mean like you're putting a bit of yourself out there and and that takes courage you know, if you write a song and sing it to someone, if you write a story and get someone to read it. And I would say write a poem is is like very much at the the pointy end of that. You know, it's a, it's especially even it's not that fashionable, you know. It's not like everyone sat around writing poems. Everyone sat around writing Instagram captions, but they're not writing poems. So it you you're putting yourself out there, aren't you? You know, and does that but that's something you've always done and and not been too phased by. Yeah. Um, well it's, I'd never, I didn't do it at all up until I started university. That, right. That was when poetry became something that I, I remember, I remember the first lecture of poetry, which was part of my creative writing degree. Um, I remember having one idea in my head and we were set a task to, I think it was just, it was probably something more complicated, but come back next week with a poem. Yeah. And I just remember being terrified. I was like, I've got one idea. Right. I can't just spunk it now on the first thing. Yeah. Was, is, was, it, is it good enough? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or like, I'll just write it down and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's my idea. Um, so that being at university gave me the freedom to, or gave me the confidence to have ideas, I think. And poetry turned out to be the way that I expressed them. Right. Um, but I, I, I very much, I felt like a writer at university, not a surfer. And then that, that there's gradually been a transition, I think, from feeling like a writer and a poet to now being a surfer who writes a bit of poetry sometimes. Yeah. Has that, has that affected your self-image? Um, I don't know. How, how do you mean self-image? Well, you know, like, again, that, that if, if you, because presumably like that, that expression is, is an important part of, 
you feeling good about the world and you know again feeling like you're fulfilling things creatively so if that's taken a bit of a back seat is that do you, do you is that kind of something that's worried you or are you just a bit like that'll come back and this is this is the way that life is right now um no i i think it definitely does i wouldn't say worry me but i'm aware of i'm aware of work that has to be done in the future to, yeah that's, to what, that's what i'm getting at. that ground yeah yeah um and it, it's interesting with surfing speaking to through my sponsorship with reef i've been really lucky to um hang out with some amazing surfers like rob machado and taylor knox and surfers who have achieved a great deal within surfing and the way they talk about surfing it occupies a far more important space in their minds than i feel it occupies in mine like i i see it as a pastime and something that i really love but it it doesn't necessarily have much depth to me whereas it does for guys like that and i think that's probably because they're far more involved with it and maybe because they're culturally in a space geographically where it has it carries more weight to be a professional surfer or an athlete or to come second in the world as rob did but well where they come from i mean it is the culture isn't it yeah you know that is the culture yeah especially like where rob comes from yeah. and taylor as well yeah. you know like that i mean i've interviewed both of them and hung out with them where they live not and and you see the immersion of that world mm. you know and like how yeah, I mean, it is, it is like a, it, that is the culture. So you can see that. But, you know, you said earlier that you're obsessed by it. And yeah. you said earlier that you're like, I can't remember the phrase you used, but you basically said it dominates your life. So yeah, it does. Kind of sounds like, what's it, the difference? Well, I think that that's the, um, that's the contradiction that I grapple with is um, that I, I am totally obsessed with it and I'm obsessed with all of it. Like I like watching shortboarding events. I like seeing who's where in the rankings. I like seeing, I watched the WSL event in Noosa. Um, and then on a local scale, I check the forecast all the time. I want to, I want to surf every day, the best place that I can go surfing. Like yeah. it's totally all absorbing. But then there's another thing in my head saying, what this is just, it's, there's nothing to this. Yeah. Other than kind of a, just a selfish chasing of a feeling yeah i know exactly what you mean i but sometimes there's probably nothing wrong with that really is yeah <laughs> then there's another part of my head that goes doesn't matter about it yeah there's nothing yeah. wrong with that do that yeah well at least you're aware of it though yeah is that a good thing to be aware of that i think so i i need to turn that um awareness i feel like i need to use that awareness as a fuel to um maybe ignite the other parts of my life that i see more potential value in but i don't know who's i don't know where i'm getting these judgments of value on i don't know why writing good poetry would be more valuable than surfing yeah i mean it's a and again i think it's just you for me and this is why i framed it in this way earlier just comes down to the way that you perceive yourself the way that you perceive yourself image really if that makes sense and what what feels like success to you as an individual and they're just different for everybody aren't they you know for a lot of people it is just and i'm the same i admire that single-mindedness you know like i've got friends that have just we've all got them you know just dedicated their lives to like one thing you know um and that might be snowboarding that might be surfing and that's all they give a fuck about and that's all they're gonna do and I, and this part of me really admires that that i mean that's not me you know but yeah. um but sometimes i do get jealous of that i f i feel like with surf with my particular form of surfing though there's no it's like longboarding is an inconsequential easy thing for me to do now like it's there's no other than just every day enjoying myself yeah there's nothing to achieve with someone like we were talking about tom earlier but tom Lowe, he can he has an image of this incredible massive wave that he wants to surf and there seems like a a, a goal a degree of completion and a yeah there's something to aim for right but i just feel like there's not much to aim for other than me having a good time which feels like something that why would you yeah that makes sense yeah i mean and that brings us back to what we were talking about earlier with that career path for uk surface thing because yeah because you look at those boys and i guess you almost need that focus and that drive 
to get to this point whatever it is to do what they do really because especially someone like tom who's obviously wired in a very particular way to be doing what he's doing is that something that you've noticed then from from conversations by the sounds of it with tom and and, and people that, that that have those ambitions in surfing that it is very much like a you know there's a focal point there's a there's a goal yeah with i think with that whole community who i've been really lucky enough to spend time with guys like jack johns um and tom and matt smith and the guys at moy um there there's just a there's a different kind of single-mindedness that goes into riding waves of the sort that they do that i i just don't i don't need it i don't have i don't have it a i, don't, I probably don't have the skills get skill set to ride those waves and i just don't have the desire to do that but you can see with them they are they think about riding waves in a in a different way and in a much far more intense way i think than my experience of wave riding is yeah so with the creative stuff that we've been talking about do you do you have any concrete ambitions with it or is it more just to get into the habit again or to keep the habit going um i i think i've got airy fairy visions of writing novels and things like that which i hope one day i will go through the process of making more concrete but I, at the moment just finding more routine and and um I think I need, I just, I just listened to your podcast with Chris and talking about deadlines, Chris McLean. <laughs> and I feel like yeah. I just don't have deadlines the, at the moment. Yeah, the power of the deadline. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I found this book that I wrote the other day. I mean, it's a guidebook, so it's not like a, it's not a novel, but it was a fucking pain in the ass. And it was like me and two friends wrote it. It's about 15 years ago now. I was cleaning up my office, found it. I was like, oh no, way, look at that. And that was like the most stressful deadline of my life. But there's no way on earth I would have written that book without yeah. that deadline. You yeah. know, that was like basically, and we had a year to do that and we still nearly missed it. But yeah, like it, it is a powerful incentive. Yeah. Yeah. So back to the the competitive thing, because again, I did speak to a couple of friends and one of that we've got in common and one of the friends was a bit like asking him about the WSL tour. You know, is he going to do it? So when you look at that event, presumably you watched Noosa. Um, did, how did you feel about it? Did you, did you think it represented your vision of competitive longboarding, what it could be? It, um, yeah, I think it, whenever you try and put something that is an expression of freedom, that I think longboarding is is an ex a self-expressive way of just being completely free and when you try and confine that into a competitive framework you're going to have to sacrifice certain aspects of that self-expression and I see that happening with the WSL but that's fine because it's a competition yeah um the the thing that I think it loses is an enjoyment of community and the social aspect of those get-togethers because there's more on the line because now instead of just winning this fun contest someone can become a world champion yeah and that inevitably will i think lead to a um a bit of a shift in the dynamic because like the early festivals at noosa you'd get sort of 100 150 longboarders from around australia around the world would get together and we'd you'd sort of party all night and then surf all day and it was a really enjoyable week of just indulgent surfing and and living yeah like just more session based really. yeah exactly and yeah like the but like like surfing is you know? yeah, yeah yeah totally and and now with, with watching it, with, it with a competition sort of loosely thrown around yeah, yeah yeah and the competitions like it's required because that's what brings everything everyone together yeah um but maybe now it's shifted just to more professionalism and people are going to bed at nine and waking up at five and yeah stretching and yeah yeah which is fine yeah <laughs> like i can't there's no there's no point in um i just don't know if that's what i want to do right well you you, you know like you described earlier you've got a pretty good gig right now yeah <laughs> there's a lot of traveling totally. how, how much you're on the road seems like quite a lot um yeah it, it yeah it often is a lot this year i've been at home a lot and um i guess now over the last six months i have become more keenly aware of 
how much I travel yeah and the reasons behind travel um, well especially if you've got this underlying thing of like this is actually quite frivolous yeah yeah totally you know totally, yeah as you kind of described yeah yeah so so a combination of that um frivolity and then the carbon emissions of jet setting around the world just to go surfing yeah um, you're starting to kind of be aware of that yeah so that's i'm about to travel a lot um about to go to Mexico now. I'm going to go to Sailita with Finisterre and then six weeks later, I'm going back to the same town right. in Mexico to do a contest. Um, but I think I'm... So that, that feels indulgent and a bit kind of, why am I, why am I doing that? Is there, is there a point to that? So I'm mentally shifting from my global travel, which was a big part of the early days with my sponsorship with Reef and yeah. I'm enjoying more European and UK based travel places that you can get to in a ferry or yeah car. yeah you went up to like Western Isles didn't you and recently I saw yeah still never been up there oh it's beautiful yeah it looks amazing well your trip I was a bit like I've got to go up there yeah it looks, it looks great it's special so you think you might do more of that I think so that's all that's always been my favorite way of traveling anyway and that's there's the the well-trodden path of the kind of driving license at 17 and driving down to Hossegor. Yeah. Um, and then doing, going to Galicia or Portugal. Um, those trips, they were, they were what I grew up doing and they're, they're definitely what I prefer to do. I'd yeah. rather load my van up at home with everything and go somewhere within kind of tangible yeah. reach of the UK. Um, that feels a lot more natural to me. But you, you know, you've been lucky enough to go to some pretty, you know, you mentioned Sam Bleakley earlier. You know, you guys went to Madagascar, didn't you? Yeah. Made a film. Yeah. Kind of like you've been privileged to kind of, yeah, surf, but also kind of dig into some pretty unusual places, right? Y yeah, definitely. Th those are the ones that I think Sam's Sam's an expert at finding um, cultural significance within kind of the surf trip genre and uh, our the trip to Madagascar we took, and then even more so probably the trip to Mauritania that um, Jack, myself and Iski went on with Sam, that they are a different thing. Um, what, what do you mean when you say cultural significance? I think the the motivation for, I mean, Sam, obviously that he, he makes his brilliant corners films, um, but the motivation for travel isn't trying to find amazing waves. It's not going on swells. It's not going to surf specific spots it's going to explore um a wider culture that's probably that almost always separate from surf culture and seeing how our little injection of surf culture on a trip interacts with um a local coastal coastal culture wherever we go right um and in a place like mauritania they basically don't have and a coastal culture they don't interact with the sea at all really yeah they they mauritanians were um historically nomadic people of the sahara desert right and only recently have they kind of pinned down uh permanent settlements and like fishing is just not something that they do right um, they they they're just they're desert people so sure so they're for us going in the sea for them was just mad they just don't no reference points no at reference all. points at all yeah, right exactly what did they think um they thought it was well they, they kind of just weren't really interested right they, they, it was not people just don't go in the sea there's a few expats there that are um not expats no Thierry is mauritanian but french mauritanian right colonial mauritanian and he goes in the sea and there's a few people that surf at a place called le wharf um but they basically have to pay the fishermen who there are there are fishermen that fish off this old wharf that was built in the 70s or something to right. land cargo they pay them to stop fishing so right. they can surf because their nets are in the lineup right so they kind of wow they come up with a a price that's good for the fishermen they stop and then they surf but there's no there's it's just completely culturally going in the sea is not yeah it's not a thing it's not a thing right yeah. so do you quite do you prefer those trips where you can you can get that insight as well as the surf. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely more nourishing um, to come home feeling like you've learned something and interacted with people on a less of a kind of smash and grab, kind of come in, yeah. go surfing, go home. 
kind of way. And I think that's, I think longboarding is, lends itself to that kind of travel because you don't need, you can go on a really fulfilling surf trip without necessarily having to get amazing waves. Yeah. And um, that's something where I've looked at what Sam's done and, and realized that the surfing part of it is kind of incidental to yeah. the narrative of whatever. Well, it's a vehicle to get is. you there, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Basically. Yeah. So have you explored that in some of the writings you've been doing as well then? Yeah. Because um, obviously that's a pretty nice way of linking the two things that you're talking about. Yeah. It? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think every, every trip that I curate. Getting some nice atmospheric rain on the, <laughs> yeah. on the metal roof there. Yeah. <laughs> We've been used to this in the UK, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> the last few weeks. Sort of like starting to hunker down a little yeah, bit yeah yeah yeah, yeah every, every trip i go on is i, I th- there's a narrative there first yeah and then kind of the waves come afterwards is that where your work kind of is published then because i couldn't really find much i'd look on you know it's looking for your poetry looking for yeah. um, you know i've seen your stuff in wavelength obviously and yeah um you've had stuff in like surface journal right and is that yeah. right yeah um but it doesn't seem I couldn't like find a website or anything or yeah no I don't I don't have a website I don't have this is probably something I need to do well it's not obligatory is it but I just thought it was no. interesting that it wasn't wasn't really it's found an old tumbler yeah it's out there <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 there's an old tumbler and and just stuff in print I guess I published a book of poetry with my mum a few years ago oh you did yeah she's a right. photographer and had okay. a, a publishing business um so yeah, that's where my poetry's in print. Right. But yeah, the the work I just it, I pitch an idea to a magazine and yeah. it gets it gets printed. Um I wrote something for Finisterre from the trip we did to Galicia. Um but I th- the surfing the surf writing isn't it's almost a means to an end in that that's my job yeah. is, is to yeah, you can, travel. You can do it. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a rich heritage of it, though. You know, I'd say of all the, of all the kind of, um, you know, board sports, action sports, whatever you want to say, so, skating's got a kind of proper literary tradition, I guess. You know, there there are definitely decent writers in skateboarding, but surfing definitely. You know, it's like mm. proper proper writers around, and you know, there is a, there is a nice nice history of kind of surf travel writing that's kind of got proper legitimate chops really you know it is out there yeah yeah definitely and i i think um it's something that i have i don't read enough of it to i don't read enough contemporary stuff to i think create my work and add add to the canon in a way other than just sort of going there that's probably that can be quite a good thing though can't it just generally if you try to yeah because then you know just avoid that that influence i think there's there's all i always find it difficult with surfing as well there's this tension with trying to um you want to be specific in your writing but then you also want you layer this mystique into what you're doing as well because you don't want to name spots and you don't want to say where you're going and oh yeah it's definitely parameters yeah for sure but that's hard as a writer because you if you are if you're somewhere really interesting with really lovely place names and people and yeah that's like the cornerstone of a, an interesting piece of writing i think but yeah, yeah having to then hide that yeah but still be specific and still um still weave a narrative that's rooted in place is quite something that i struggle with yeah well I, you know you, you definitely place in a few creative blocks in your path aren't you there definitely yeah, yeah. do you have any influences with, on the poetry side that you because obviously you know you studied and presumably pretty pretty well versed in the canon yeah to, to use the word you used before there, there was a writer called ws graham um, who was a Scottish writer? From I don't, don't, not familiar. Yeah, he he was relatively obscure in his lifetime. He, he was from Glasgow and then moved to a village called Madron in West Cornwall, which is actually where my I first lived until I was three years old. It's near Penzance and where right. I live. But he he wrote really beautifully about Penwith and West Cornwall and was a a touchstone for me for incorporating the natural world but then also human interaction to his writing yeah which is something that i've tried to do with my work recently because i when i first started writing it was all just nature and that was 
uh, inspiration for me was just the natural world but now it's far more on a, a human level well where you live is the sharp end of like how that human relationship with landscape is changing real time you know on an in, on an industrial level and how it's affecting people's lives and quality of life isn't it you know that's happening in real time in west cornwall and um has been happening traditionally for the last couple of hundred years you know and i noticed that you know there's some stuff on your instagram which is like clips from like i don't even know when it's from but it's like old clips of people from cornwall but like that's i thought i thought that was really interesting because it is really showed you like how quickly that world's gone really and, and yeah. has changed that and i kind of thought when i was looking at that and from what you've just said about your work like it's obviously something that you feel quite keenly right the, the, the fact that that's a changing culture essentially yeah definitely um i found a, a lot of my writing recently is when attempting to explore the um relationship with tourism and and that new economy building itself out of the ashes of this kind of industrial past. Um, we are, and again, you're at the, you know, you're a lifeguard in, yeah. in, in Senan. So yeah. you see it yeah. every day. Yeah. And that, and presumably obviously you see that surface reality of that on the beach, but yeah. then clearly will understand the real, you know effect of that on, yeah. on the community and the environment yeah. well it ties in like conversations with old cornish folk and they're like bloody summers here roads are clogged up yeah you can't yeah. move for tourists bloody, blah, blah, blah. and that patter is something that um you can't help but <laughs> you can like imbibe and just be part of your feeling like summers summers are wonderful but it's like it's always tinged with that god i can't wait for them to go home yeah um and then surfing ties into that as well because I post pictures from West Cornwall where I love to surf and then I put a picture up one day and then the next day I'm complaining because it's busy and then... Well, I was going to say, you know, that's another little contradiction that you've got there, isn't it? Because yeah. you, your job is to promote what you do yeah. and the more that you stay at home and the more that you surf at home and you're good at it. You know, your Instagram's very... I always look at it and I'm always like, oh, looks good down there at the minute. Yeah, 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 <laughs> totally, yeah. And I've, I, I, half of my life is sort of delicately chatting to local surfers from Senan and Gwenver about like what I'm doing and them going like oh, I saw you put a picture up the other day and you're like yeah sorry about that yeah and, and then I and then I write about tourists coming in and having house names that are actually just websites for booking companies and yeah uh, I don't, yeah I think there, there's from a cultural point of view there's something to be explored there and it's starting to be with films like bait i was gonna say you see you've seen yeah, it yeah yeah really enjoyed it and, and i thought it was great i thought um, it was like well i thought it was funny for a start yeah it was funny. and um and also like weird yeah like you know like con conceptually weird like the story's simple obviously mm. um but the way it was made i mean the you know the technical way it's been delivered mm. is is very unusual mm. um but I thought it was really great. Yeah, I yeah, and it's it well. and it's it's about this, isn't it? Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's exactly what it's about. How did you? So, as a local who's seen that firsthand, what? Because I guess someone like me, I guess if I phrase it a bit differently, um, come down to Cornwall every year, down here now, you know, total incomer, um, surf down here, and can clearly see the tension, and 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 it is a bit like, well, what what is the solution? Because obviously, what what's going on down here is the main industry is tourism now and for right or wrong the local economy and community kind of seems to rely on tourism so how can you reconcile those two things with you know keeping this culture which however jokingly you sort of say it like oh you know bloody people blocking the roads and all that it is real and it is a thing and people are fucked off right you know people feel like they want to protect that part that makes this you know such a unique part of the UK while at the same time making a living off the people that are coming down there you know how can is there is there a way of sustaining it is is it something that can be reconciled i think with Corm cornwall occupies quite a unique space within the united kingdom because it lacks the autonomy of wales and scotland yeah but retains a feeling of otherness to to england even though politically and structurally it's totally still part of england but 
I think that's maybe where the 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 tension from the Cornish people themselves comes from because they don't have that recognized autonomy to fall back on so there's there's a feeling that they need to express their otherness through dissatisfactions of how their their home is being treated and whether whether that's real or not i i think maybe it's it's constructed sometimes that tension right really well it to certain it, last year there was a there was a Porth Kerno became really popular and Pedney especially because on Instagram or Facebook there was a beautiful video of it looking like the Caribbean right and there's a be- oh yeah it's like Tureen Beach was like, I think I saw exactly, it exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and that was a very like oh right so that had a real spike did it just oh, that, from that yeah right like a brutal because that was spike. always like a little best kept secret I yeah. mean it wasn't a secret but you know it wasn't it wasn't like yeah. where tourists particularly yeah. flocked to well, it's, was it it doesn't make sense to, it can't it, the infrastructure cannot handle yeah. people going down there so that was it's a little bit trickier to get to really and, yeah hard yeah. to get down yeah. people it, like influencers were go, seeking that place out really? because it was like a slice of heaven within the United Kingdom that do you know what the first time I went there little digression was about 95 and I remember being like, fuck me. How come no one's told me about this? Yeah. You know, like this is actually England, yeah. you know, because it, you know, beautiful summer day, um, lovely little waves, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is like a special, well, Cornwall, let's be honest, at its best is, is it is special, it is beautiful. Like, yeah. and it does have that, you know, on those days. Yeah, but I didn't realise that. So that, that, it, that really kind of had a, had a real life impact on like height, the, North Corn, Kerno. The and, roads were blocked. Right. You couldn't get... You, people were abandoning cars on the road because the, really? the, the road system was blocked right like with people like hundreds of cars standstill traffic two or three hours no way yeah like right. it, it was it was unbearable for people that lived there and it was unsustainable that level of um that influx of tourism in that particular place at that time and that was just because of one kind of moment of like this place is amazing let's go there and let's I, I think with the age of media immediacy that we have at the moment, yeah. it, that sort of thing is going to happen more and more. People, a, a place will be in the zeitgeist for a moment and then it will just be flooded and then forgotten the next moment. And there needs to be some kind of more level-headed approach to tourism in Cornwall. And I don't know what that is. Yeah, And, and that tension, I, I was saying about the tension before and sometimes it is kind of manufactured by local people. But so you fit, so you, you think it, and you think that's a self-identity thing almost, just a way of like, or kind of just putting the flag in the ground a little bit and saying, this is who we are. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. yeah. And I do it. I, it, I'm lucky living so far west that I'm out of the, I yeah. don't have to grapple with the A30 on a well, day You're the end basis. of the line, aren't you? Exactly, yeah. I'm, I'm already like it's <laughs> all, all the traffic jams are behind me, so yeah. I'm fine. But um, I totally... I totally am guilty of um, being that grumpy bastard who's complaining about the crowds whilst also telling people that they should come because I'm so proud of it. Yeah. Um, but and, and I think that that grumpiness and that teasiness is is a way of saying... I'm from here. Yeah. This is, this is mine. You don't, you can't think about it the way that I think about it. Yeah. Because you're other. I mean, that is fertile creative territory. Yeah. And I, I think it's really surprising that there's not actually much, um, been written about that or there's not much of a, um, a heritage there. Well, I think that's why Bates struck such a chord, isn't it? Because, you know, it is actually, it's a, it is a real cultural, story in, in our in everyone's backyard isn't mm. it and there's definitely you know the acclaim it's got there's definitely a bit of like oh look at this film about Cornwall you know there's a bit of like yeah. but he's made a serious point in, yeah. in like you know in a in a really like say like funny affecting way yeah. and that's not easy to do no. that you know you could have done that with a fucking sledgehammer couldn't you you know yeah. but it's subtle and it's and it's important yeah isn't it I think that one of the things for me was that the story is so simple and I think the bravery to run with a story so simple and something that could, for a Cornish person, we, we everyone moans about houses and second homes and stuff, yeah. but to 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 commit to a creative work on that 
theme and that was quite like brave. that sparse as well yeah you know there's hardly any dialogue in it yeah, yeah. dialogue is just so pithy isn't it yeah and like just you know it, yeah it, like totally could have like been a bit of a disaster that film yeah totally but like i really did pull it off yeah. i'm kind of harping on about it but i was i was like i did think it was really great yeah. and if you haven't seen it you should definitely see it um so do you feel sounds like cornish identity is pretty important to you then yeah i think it yeah very obvious question in the light of what we just talked about but do you feel cornish or english um i feel cornish i i feel cornish and english and european and and uh and british yeah and, I think and it's all, possible to feel all yeah, those things they can coexist i, inst- I, think. I understand that yeah and that's where I think if they stop being able to coexist or someone tells it that you, you that you can't feel um that those things can't sit alongside each other that's where dangerous patriotism well that's another podcast that one isn't it exactly yeah <laughs> we're living it but we're it's, living it right now i'm not even going to say the b word yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly it, it's in i i find i find myself retreating to a a space of cornish identity especially when i'm traveling and surfing because the australian and californian um kind of ideals of surf lifestyle are often put on pedestals for how how the beach lifestyle should be lived and i i often am at pains to to a certain degree reject that and say there's there's something else going on yeah in cornwall and it's not obviously it's not from the 60s and it's not it doesn't have that cultural cachet but it's there's something else going on yeah i would buy that completely because well it's a bit it's younger isn't it firstly yeah and and i actually talked to steve england quite a lot about this yesterday but it's it's a a valid point when you're in this part of the world i think like you know we're not we just don't have what they've got and 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 it's but but that's i almost prefer i mean fuck i surf brighton do you know what i mean like it is like as far from Encinitas <laughs> as you can physically and you know like and but it's still I had a better time surfing in Brighton than I did in Encinitas to yeah, be honest you exactly. know what I mean like yeah. um I hate California <laughs> well like you know whatever like it's it's, it's just it's just yeah and that's fine I think I think that's a legitimate position it's perhaps not a position that Joel Tudor would understand but you know no. or people are immersed in or even give a shit about but or, you know who are immersed in that world to yeah. that degree yeah but I think yeah there's something there is something like very unique about yeah our weird little scene and, and I I think especially within longboarding and Joel Joel's a big part of this is there's a lot of um a lot of importance is put on where you fit into surfing's lineage. Yeah. And Joel is such a student of um, the history of surfing and longboarding. And my friends who are surfers in Southern California all have personal relations to that, um, that timeline of development. Yeah. And as a British surfer, we're just so out of it. Just like my neither of my parents surf like lots of my friends are first generation surfers like we've got no touchstones no. to that timeline and then i think the onus then is on us to start trying to just not be in awe of yeah of that thing and not because i've often just felt like ah oh, fuck i'm i've got nothing to contribute well i was about yeah. to ask you do you ever feel like does it affect you as an individual in that world? Because you are in that world, obviously. You know, you're a professional longboarder on the same team as Rob Machado, as you've said. You know what I mean? Like, you are in that world. You are in that industry. So do you do you feel like... Have you ever felt that there was, like, judgment there or that you had more ground to make up or... Not, not really. I, I think it's sort of often worked in my favour in that I'm, I'm an oddity. Yeah. I'm kind of... Um, yeah, people don't expect for me to be British and for there to be waves in England, <laughs> despite yeah. the fact it's an island in the Atlantic. But, um, <laughs> You've got waves? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, But yeah, I don't think it's, it hasn't worked against me, but I, I, you do often feel like you are outside of this, this intangible thing that yeah. people talk about and they talk about their dads learning to surf and their first boards from blah, 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 blah. And... Uh, yeah, it's nice. It's nice to for me anyway to feel more 
to think of myself as Cornish and have that, yeah, which is separate from surfing, but something to be feel part of. Yeah. Okay. Final question, because you, you, well, we're not quite there, but I think we've got time for coffee before you go. Did an hour. So, how long do you think you're going to carry on with this lifestyle that you've got, given what we've talked about and you know the context of how we've talked about it? Um, uh, as long as I can. <laughs> good answer yeah <laughs> that's what i was hoping you yeah. would say <laughs> i mean i've i thought um i thought it might be coming to an end this year reef have they've stopped making apparel so they've just they're just making footwear now right and my contract has um changed as a result of that i'm still still with them but on a lesser level but then so i thought when that news came through that that might be the end of the full-time thing and that i'd be able to have to look for other aspects of lifeguarding or writing more commercially um but then the finisterre thing has come in and that's really helped me so at yeah. the moment i'm still i'm still in the incredibly fortunate position to for surfing to be my career and i think i think it will just be a gradual shift yeah um and hopefully i'll find something equally as enjoyable but maybe slightly more rewarding <laughs> intellectual sense yeah well thanks for doing it man thank you very much matt no worries so there you go that was me and mikey laying conversation and i hope you enjoyed it gotta thank mike for being so accommodating that day actually thank you watergate bay for hosting me on this trip and thanks a lot like i said at the beginning to open surf for their uh hospitality and generosity that day anyway housekeeping corner time there's quite a lot to get through this week to be honest I'm going to start with a letter I received from Rob last week, which very much made my day. I'm not going to read it all because it was bloody massive. And I really hope you didn't type that out on your iPhone, Rob. Anyway, Rob writes, hey, Matt, how's it going? Just wanted to jot you a line to say a big cheers for the podcast, really. I've only just got into it the last month or so after a bit of Googling and recommendations from friends. I found some website listing top 10 this or that. And found a brief description and a link to your one amongst others. Thought I'd give it a listen. This relatively late discovery has given me the benefit of having a high back catalogue to dive into, which is sweet. A few different big ups for your setup coming. Lack of adverts is great. Sounds like a simple thing, but after listening to a good number, probably 30 odd of your podcast now, it's obviously been a point of contention for you over the years. At the same time I found yours, I was recommended another similar theme podcast, so I checked out their episode with Jeremy Jones. Couldn't even last the whole episode as the host kept cutting to a commercial plug three times during his pre-recorded chat with Jeremy, so he lost me straight away. Thanks a million for not doing this. It makes yourself so much better for sure. I feel your degree of research knowledge of each guest is mirrored in the amazingly well-structured and curated questions you ask. You seem to be able to extract an incredible degree of information and insight from people in a thoroughly intelligent, entertaining and engaging way. Oh, thanks, mate. That's nice. Not just ticking the standard easy to ask, obviously low hanging fruit stuff that every other podcast or magazine interview in the world seems to cover. And I get the impression most of your guests can feel this too. I feel that many of the thought patterns, emotions, decisions made questioned regret sacrifices or concepts i've not really thought about too deeply but are mirrored in many of the areas you discuss with your guests these chats have not only helped me be aware of these things in my life but have helped me to understand process and give context to them and also be aware that i'm not the only one who's experienced such things it's given me huge peace of mind and started me down what i feel is a positive path of emotional and personal understanding and growth so cheers nice one bloody hell rob I mean, how amazing is that? That really does make all those hours chasing slack as fuck possible guests around the world. Very worthwhile. Thank you very much. Very much appreciated that. As I always say at this point, keep them coming. It's nice when you get them because, you know, that, that's that's amazing. So, right, what else is going on? Well, as you might have gathered if you follow me on Instagram over at We Look Sideways, I've decided to step manfully up to the plate and contribute to the, sorry, unprecedented amount of online content that is currently being produced out there. I like to visualize said content right now. Do you remember the old EU butter mountains they used to talk about? Remember those? Not just me. The point was there was a lot of butter, supposedly, more than we could ever consume. It's a little bit how I feel about digital content right now. You know, one good thing of this whole crisis is we are living in a time of content bounty. 
and I've rolled my sleeve up and I've decided to get involved by adding to said content slash butter mountain he said mangling his metaphor to pieces but you know you've probably all turned off by now anyway so who cares so firstly i've started doing video well instagram live videos now as long-term listeners will know i've been grappling with the question of doing filmed interviews for years now and this situation has finally given me the kick up the arse that i needed and it's actually turned out pretty well i started last night as i record this with the first ever Type 2 Live, which saw me interview my most recent Type 2 guest, Chris Hines, MBE, over on the Patagonia Europe and We Look Sideways Instagram accounts. I've got to say, it was great. I really enjoyed it. We had a lot of people listening, sending comments and questions and generally being really lovely about the conversation. I got compared to Chris Martin only once. Um, There's a lot of people going, oh yeah, yeah, can you believe it? Um, we got one okay boomer which made me laugh Um, but generally it was yeah it was great so I'm going to be doing them every Friday these type 2 lives now you can check them out by following me on Instagram this is the third time I'm going to say it over at we look sideways or if you missed it by looking at my IGTV where I'll be posting each episode where I've worked out when I've worked out should I say how to do that I managed to mess up the first one by not saving it properly but I've worked out a way to do that so I'm going to put them on Instagram TV I'm going to put them on YouTube as well fuck it I'm going to start a YouTube channel something else that I've been asked to do for years and the reason I quite like this is because it's not just me filming the normal episodes and you know repeating them it's new it's different it's different stuff that, that accompany the episodes so I'm quite happy about that and after all I've got a lot of time on my hands so I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna launch a YouTube channel can you believe it? Um, and I also finally got around to sorting out the Looking Sideways blog that I've been thinking about doing for years. I did start it a few years ago and then I let it slide. But it's, um, you know, by the time this comes out, it should be up there on my website. A blog, how very old fashioned I'll be posting the odd piece myself. But mainly I've asked guests to contribute their own five things and what they've been doing to get through this. So my key this episode is doing his five favourite poems. I've had people doing music books. Favourite football shirts, which was a bit random. That was Chris McLean. I didn't realise how into football he is, but he is. Which, you know, for me, is has already made setting up the blog worthwhile. So you can find the blogs by heading to my website over at www.wearelookingsideways.com. Or you can head to the link in my Instagram click that and it should lead you to the the blogs oh that was my bluetooth speaker having a little wobbler anyway i'll be following these with more instagram live chats with those guests about their five things so the first of these is going to be with ed lee which will have happened by the time it comes out but again you know i'm just going to bang them up on instagram as they happen split screen instagram live interview alert and we'll be saving those to instagram tv and again youtube like i'm saying so it's going to be content a go-go i feel a bit like gary v over here with me youtube and me instagram tv and me instagram live and me podcasts and you know i might even end up getting back on facebook at this point anyway there's a lot going on you know you got to keep busy aren't you so, I mean, I'm still doing the podcast as well. I'll be back next week with another episode, hopefully the final one of that Cornwall series, if I can persuade this guest to let me put the episode out because they've also decided that they weren't that keen on it. But, you know, we'll see. Um, in the meantime, enjoy your week. I hope you're keeping safe and safe, even and healthy. Um, yeah, nice one. Nice one.